Oh, it's Kevin. Oh, you're too dark to be seen because my camera's messed. <laughs> she looks like the uh, creatures from Attack the Block. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 104. Today, we are talking about Wes Anderson's debut feature, Bottle Rocket, and the 90s new wave, of which Wes Anderson uh, was a part. The 90s new wave would be Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Robert Rodriguez, Allison Anders, Wes Anderson, Alexander Payne. And then there were a number of filmmakers around that time, Alexander Rockwell as well, that we know, we don't know. And the 80s wave of American filmmakers is often defined as like John Sayles, Jim Jarmusch, the Coen brothers, Spike Lee. The 70s wave of American filmmakers would often be, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, Brian De Palma, Hal Ashby, among many others. The 60s wave, we can go back and back, we won't, but 60s wave would actually be like Arthur Penn, Sam Peckinpah. Today we are talking about the 90s wave. Who is with us? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carl Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. Just, you know, another podcast. Another day. I feel like one of your children, Edwin, is going to be in therapy about that sigh. Yeah, it's the way it crumbles, uh, Craig. And they're going to come to me, and they're going to be like, I want you to be my real father. And I'm going to put my <laughs> arm around them, and I'll be like, I'll show you the love and the acceptance that your father never gave you. And then they're going to come back, they're going to be like, Daddy, I love Igmar Bergman. And what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to say, remember that guy, Craig, who didn't show a certain oh, And they're going to be like, yeah, you mean the guy, the guy who talks to me all the time, unlike you, who's always in like stores buying things and using the family money? I had to go eat at Craig's house because there was nothing in the fridge at our house, Dad. That guy, yeah, I remember him. I spent $1,000 on DVDs. I can't budget. <laughs> My family is dying. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh is not reassuring. Anyway, I am Craig, the founder programmer at Secret Movie Club. It's wonderful to have everybody here. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. This week... When you hear this, we are going to be showing on Friday, Carlos Night 1, and then Saturday, Carlos Night 2, a movie I love by French filmmaker Olivier Assayas. I'm not always an Olivier Assayas movie fan. In a way, he actually makes so much stuff that's so varied that you're just default going to like some of his stuff and some might not be your speed. But this was all about Carlos the Jackal, and it came out roughly around the same era as Soderbergh's Che, Spielberg's Munich. There was some Something in the air in the late aughts where people were really, I mean, <laughs> probably the Iraq war and 9-11 and uh, the war in Afghanistan were people were looking at terrorism and political movements of 20, 30 years prior. And Olivier Assayas as Carlos deals with Carlos the Jackal, one of the most famous terrorists of all time, famous for a number of plane hijackings and murders and assassinations in the 70s. But its thesis is actually pretty fascinating, which is that like so many people, terrorist, revolutionary, politician or not, Carlos became more obsessed with being a celebrity than actually accomplishing anything, whether you agreed with what he accomplished or not. He became more infatuated with his image and reputation than he did with whatever he got into, whatever he called it. And I thought that was a very insightful premise for a movie, actually, because I think like Lord of the Rings, everyone sees that power, regardless of your politics, does seem to corrupt people. It's a great movie, and it's got a great punk rock soundtrack from the 70s, and it's just a dope movie that we're showing across two nights. Then on Wednesday, 
We're doing a fundraiser for this organization I'm very impressed with called Teens for Teens by Laura Lee Darling. Laura Lee Darling is a teenager here in Los Angeles, and she started a uh, organization to help foster teens who are aging out of the system. When she reached out to us to do a fundraiser, I was moved by it because I used to actually volunteer at an organization for kids who were in that system. And um, the system, as these kids get older, suddenly at 18, that's it. They're done. They're out of the system. And it's a, it can be very abrupt and not right. And uh, we're going to be showing Ferris Bueller's Day Off on 35mm, a movie I love. So just come and see Ferris on 35. But all revenues, and I mean all revenues, I, someone pointed this out and I was happy they noticed, not all profits. When people say all profits, they might not give anything to charity if technically they defined that they didn't make profit. We're everything that you spend that night for tickets or concessions. We can't do it for our merch. If you pay for our merch, the merch goes to us because of uh, overhead costs. But if you buy a drink or popcorn or you buy a ticket, whether we make money that night or not, the whole thing goes to Teens for Teens and you're helping older foster teens. That money goes directly to them, help to transition to adulthood. And then Thursday, we're doing a Take a Chance Cinema is a movie I love. I hope, Connor, if you've never seen it, you'll come check it out because I think it'll be your jam. It's a movie from Spain called Time Crimes that came out in 2008. I throw it in the hat as one of the top five time travel movies ever made. It is dope. And what's so great about it, and I think we're going to be doing a podcast on it, actually. It has a low-budget way of doing a high concept idea, but it does the high concept idea so well, which is time travel. And this guy who gets stuck basically against his will traveling roughly two hours into the past. And it just creates like all sorts of problems for him. And it's just great. And it was done by this filmmaker, Nacho Vigalando. We are doing that on Thursday on 35 millimeter. The print is in the booth and we have a lot more coming up. We will remind you at the end of the month in May, we are doing all three Lord of the Rings movies at the million dollar theater on Saturday. I will also, start teasing now. Over the summer, we're doing a very exciting speaker series at the Million Dollar Theater. On July 9th, we are going to have the guys who made the Raiders adaptation. They are coming to speak. Actually, we are going to show Raiders of the Lost Ark. We are then going to show the full Raiders adaptation, which we're not sure has ever been shown in a theater because they just finally did the plane sequence. And then Eric Zala is going to talk about what it was like to do a shot-for-shot remake of uh, Raiders from being a teenager to his adult life. That is exciting. That's July 9th at the Million Dollar And then this just got confirmed August 13th at the Million Dollar Theater, which is a Saturday. Comic book writer, illustrator Mike Mignola, who did Hellboy. Uh, Mike Mignola is coming in. Uh, We are going to do Hellboy and Bride of Frankenstein on film. Mike Mignola is doing a secret movie club poster for that day. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. And some filmmakers have just done a documentary on Mr. Mignola. And we are going to be showing Hellboy. Bride of Frankenstein, The Dock, and at some point, probably at the end of the night, I would imagine, but we'll figure it out. Mr. Mignola will be on stage with the filmmakers and myself, and he'll be just talking about the nexus of comic books and cinema and uh, his life. So I'm very excited about that. And there are more, there's more to come boys, but get ready for a speaker summer at secret movie club. That's going to be a lot of fun. And as always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. We'll be announcing and launching these tickets ASAP. By the time you hear this, these tickets may be launched. Today we are talking about Bottle Rocket and the 90s new wave. So one of the things that unifies a lot of these cats from the 90s new wave, specifically Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, and Wes Anderson. Quentin Tarantino is a little different, but they all had made a short 
the short went to Sundance, essentially, or a festival like Sundance. They got into the Sundance director's lab. Tarantino got into the lab. I don't know if it was based on a short. It may have been based on a script. They all were mentored at the Sundance lab. And Wes Anderson made a short called Bottle Rocket with his college roommate, a man by the name of Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson and he went to University of Texas. They made a 14-minute short about bumbling but endearing amateur thieves. They made this short. It got a lot of attention. James Brooks and Polly Platt noticed it, helped them develop a feature-length version of Bottle Rocket, which was also called Bottle Rocket, starring Owen Wilson as Dignan, who has all these grandiose plans for being thieves with his friend, played by his real-life brother, Luke Wilson, though they're not playing brothers in the movie. And then another Wilson brother plays the bowling older brother of the third guy of this gang. This movie famously came out and bombed, so much so that Owen Wilson considered joining the Marines after it came out, because he was just like, the reception was so underwhelming. But they got enough heat and enough buzz. Martin Scorsese called Bottle Rocket the seventh best movie of the 1990s for him, that they got Rushmore. And we're going to talk about 90s New Wave. And, you know, obviously all these guys, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Robert Rodriguez, Alexander Payne, Allison Anders, they all went on to make numerous movies. But guys, why don't we do a round robin on your feelings about Bottle Rocket? I love Bottle Rocket. I love Wes's earlier live action stuff. I don't hate his later live action stuff, but his earlier stuff has, I think, a heart to it. They are quirky, and they, they, they have this quirk to them that I can see how it would be annoying, but I think they're so sincere about their characters. It's funny, like, how much until recently it took me to like see the French New Wave and all of these filmmakers of this era, especially with like the way they use really low-level crime stories to tell personal stories that really aren't actually about crime. I have to, you know, Texas, uh, University of Texas, I went I went there. Richard Linklater, I can't believe I blanked. He's 90s New Wave, uh, one of my favorites from that, that era. Rodriguez is Texan as well. Yeah, you got three of these cats who are Texan. So there was like a Texas faction of the 90s New Wave. Does Bottle Rocket hit you? Because Bottle Rocket and Rushmore are really the only two West movies that are in his native Texas. Do they feel Texan to you at all? They definitely do. Bottle Rocket, or yeah, reminds me a lot, especially with, it's one of the only times, like, he tends to not really deal with, like, language and race a lot, but there's Luke Wilson in the movie courts and as an only Spanish-speaking maid at this little hotel that they stay at while they're on the run from Johnny Law, so to speak. That feels very, like, Texan to me. That I mean, I guess that's California, and that's everywhere in the Southwest. And Rushmore, the one scene that always reminds me of Houston a lot in Rushmore is when he uh, talks to Mrs. Bluth, and they're on that building. That looks like such, like, downtown Houston to me, and I'm, I'm almost certain it is. It's funny. We had some Texans in the audience, and I was talking about how Rushmore was shot at St. John's where Wes Anderson went to high school. So you you have to feel like it was about partially his feelings about being at St. John's. And some Texan pulled me aside. He was like, St. John's is where all the oil money kids from Houston go to school. They are the rich kids and they're the oil money kids. And that's what St. John's is. I was like, oh, fascinating. Bottle Rocket to me is, is my personal favorite West Anderson. I didn't like it the first time I watched it because I was still developing my mind for movies because I was like 15 when I saw it, I believe. I, I watched a lot of crazy movies when I was 15 and Bottle Rocket was one of those movies. I revisited it in my 20s. I have a new love for that movie, how brilliant that movie really is. It's not really Wes Anderson just yet, as I said before in other podcasts about Wes Anderson. It's him reaching up to his potential, reaching up to the true Wes Anderson 
This is like, you know, indie stuff, you know, Road, uh, Splice of Life, as you call it, Craig. And for a first feature film, it's really amazing uh, what he did. In my opinion, one of his most free-feeling and most human, for sure. The criticism often put to Wes Anderson is that his movies became increasingly like movies in a dollhouse of his design and style. And Bottle Rocket... And I would say Rushmore. I would put the first two. You know, you feel an Anderson style in it, but it also feels like it takes place in a world that Anderson had lived in, that he's observing. The thing that unifies the first three movies, I mean, we, we might as well get into that. The reason we're doing this podcast is we showed Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Tannenbaums. And I weirdly, doing my introduction, was like, those three movies all center around a charismatic misfit. So it's almost like a charismatic misfit trilogy. Dignan, Max Fisher, and then Royal Tannenbaum. And they're all three written by Owen, co-written by Owen. So you almost wonder if that, the reason the first three films feel different than all the films that come after is because Owen Wilson, you know, and because Wes had a relationship with Owen before he was famous, Maybe that's why those films, although I would argue that Tannenbaum's does begin to feel a little more Wes Anderson-y in a self-conscious way. Do you feel that in three, four, and five of his movies being a Tannenbaum's Life Aquatic and Darjeeling, because each of those kind of separates more from Owen Wilson, where at least in Life Aquatic and Darjeeling, Owen's like a major, he's one of the leads in both of those, and he hasn't really, he's essentially had cameos in his films since that point. I also really like Bottle Rocket as a young southern filmmaker learning about Wes Anderson being and like this being shot in Texas made it feel like it was close and another in like that range of like accessibility like well if they can do it I can do it so it has kind of a special place it's so interesting because when you see sort of what he's become versus this this feels incredibly messy but in a way I find very endearing because it's him with such a defined voice figuring out how he utilizes that in his art I know a very common complaint with his stuff that I don't agree with is that his stuff is about nothing, but this is the one where I'm sort of like, what is this about? But at the same time, I think it has the best romance subplot. I think Anthony and Inez, their romantic thing versus any of the other stuff is the most realized and my favorite uh, romantic thing. I think it's very beautifully done because it's so understated. I want to know how they how they nailed James Caan for this, and I'm sad that he's not in the movie more. It almost feels like a thing to bring you in and kind of tricks you because he's not in it that much, but I do think it's dope that he's in it. But I, I don't know, it checks a lot of the boxes for me, and it does feel like as a debut, super impressive, because it only feels like a debut in a few ways that Rushmore then seems to really like focus in on that he knows what he's doing. It's got a quirk factor that feels of his voice versus the sort of the stereotype that I think people lay on his stuff now. There's something about it that feels unique that I can't imagine if you would have seen this in the 90s versus knowing what he is now. I imagine this would have really stood out in that regard. So I think it's kind of, I guess, underrated in that realm. I love Bottle Rocket. I think Bottle Rocket and Rushmore and maybe Moonrise Kingdom, for me, I know, Connor, you and I have talked about this, but those three are the ones I really love. I really like Tannenbaums a lot, a lot. And, you know, and, and every time I see a Wes Anderson movie, I mean, I thought Grand Budapest Hotel was, you know, and I like I put on Fantastic Mr. Fox for Craigie the other day, and we were laughing because he does that thing where the badger gets crazy eyes and just, like, freezes. <laughs> and I was like... He hasn't made, like, a bad, bad movie. No, no, no yeah. way. And he's super talented. And I remember really liking Darjeeling, and there were jokes in Zissou. The thing about, about Bottle Rocket that was interesting to me was for the majority of it, I was really enjoying it, 
But I was thinking, oh, this is a debut movie. Uh, You know, structurally, it's funny. Anthony leaves, and then suddenly Dignan shows up again for the final heist. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a weird screenplay thing. But that movie is so much about Dignan in a way as well, and how Dignan takes the fall in the final heist. But it's like the achievement of a dream for him to get busted at a bad heist. And the movie really in, in the last 10 minutes becomes great to me. Like when Dignan's in jail and and they're like visiting Dignan and, and I agree. I love the Inez storyline, how it suddenly just totally sidetracks when they're hiding out at the hotel after the, uh, the bookstore robbery. And that, that weird thing where like, they're all fairly kind, even though they're trying to be robbers. So there's the funny thing where they're very polite to the people that they're like trying to rob. And they apologize if they insult them. That thing about Dignan, I I agree. Yeah, he transcends by being arrested for the right reasons. That's that line he has about, like, they'll never catch me because I'm effing innocent. (laughs) It achieves a greatness. I've always struggled, I think, because I went to film school. I started in 95, and this was my undergrad, and I ended in 99, and then I immediately went to grad school, and I wrapped grad school around 2004, so when I was, like, 26, 27. I think that I have to deal with, I've still not made a feature film. And so I think watching these guys who are all about 10 years older than I am, roughly, some a little older, some not, I have to acknowledge and face the fact that I didn't get it off the ground in my 20s or even in my early 30s. And that's no knock against them. And all of them are fascinating voices. And I'm just always struggling when I have criticisms of their work with is that a genuine criticism or is that like sour grapes on my part? And I just don't want it to be sour grapes because I hate sour grapes. And I mean, I wish everybody the best. And I mean, God bless these guys and gals for being super talented. Catherine Bigelow and Sofia Coppola. And, you, you know, I just have to foreground that I have a real struggle I have to deal with in my own heart and my own soul about whether my reactions are legitimate cinematic criticisms or if it's sour grapes. And if it's sour grapes, then I just would rather uh, not say anything because I've got to deal with my own psychic stuff. That all being acknowledged, I just will have to say the first two Wes Anderson movies still remain my favorite. As much as I do every, I'm going to, I, you know, I always go out and see a new Wes movie. And I did love Moonrise. Something about the first love when you're 12. I really, 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 really thought he captured something. And I love, and I love Bruce Willis in that one. I thought Bruce Willis, like, suddenly gave a good Bruce Willis performance after a few years of feeling like he didn't care. Suddenly, starting around 91, I want to say, which is Reservoir Dogs, then we get Slacker, then we get El Mariachi, we get Citizen Ruth, which was Alexander Payne's debut movie, we get Bottle Rocket. I feel like the big first one is actually in the late 80s which is Sex, Lies, and Videotapes in 89. Word, great call. Steven Soderbergh is totally part of this wave. That's absolutely the opening, is uh, Soderbergh. You know, Sofia Coppola comes a little later with Virgin Suicides, but she's definitely part of this American new wave in the 90s. What what are your thoughts, guys? My favorite, the person I've always turned to in this, because I think I like everyone. I think they're stuff that they've made and continued to make in a lot of cases is phenomenal but Richard Linklater was always the one that hit closest home for me and I think it was that sort of style I already kind of spoke to previously that felt somehow attainable like I couldn't make these things but it felt like you could because it it was sort of my first experience with stuff that didn't feel like everything else I was watching because at least as in my teenage brain wasn't about anything that I could tell it was just people hanging out people 
existing. And then sort of as you kind of take those back in, you realize what it's about, what they're actually trying to do. So Slacker was a video store find that just baffled. I remember my, I think my mom came into my room and was just baffled by what I was watching. She was like, what is this? And I was like, it's, it's this thing, this, this guy's talking about like UFOs and she could not comprehend how that was where the interest in that was for like a 13 or however old I was. There's sort of this idea of, you know, art to be commercial needs to make money. And these filmmakers are fighting that idea while also making stuff that can be that too. It felt very empowering, but also the fascination that beyond just having to look good and feel good, it has to be written well. It has to be good in all these aspects because it doesn't have the resources that the other stuff we're kind of used to is. I look at Linklater's run through the 90s, which was Slacker in 1990, Days and Confused in 93, Before Sunrise in 95, which even if you just go by those three, because he did Suburbia and the Newton Boys after that. But Days and Confused is like a cultural milestone that is still incredible and talked about and yada, yada, yada. And then Before Sunrise spawned one of my favorite trilogies in, in movie history. And those three, too, make as a, the same thing from the same filmmaker feel like three completely... Like, Slacker and Days have a bit of overlap and sort of the walk and talk type of interesting dynamic, and I guess that applies to all three. But Days and Confused feels like such this time capsule of how do you look back at something that you're not that far removed from so viscerally, like understanding he must have been, what, 10 years removed from high school or something at that point, maybe a little longer. How do you look back at 10 years ago and have something to say about it that doesn't feel like just nostalgia pining to a degree? Linklater's captured something with me and I think a lot of people that he has a vibe that people try so hard to replicate and seems so effortless for him. His obsessions with time and his obsessions with like how time and cinema sort of align and what nostalgia is, not just as a thing you look back on but how it you grew with it and what it means to you now i think started from his original stuff and has only continued i would say of those filmmakers my two personal favorites are link later and alexander payne and maybe maybe soderbergh i'm glad you actually brought that up just because of his formal experimentation but i always felt that alexander payne now alexander payne is always adapting novels so i think one of the things that he's doing is finding great work that other people have already like They've broken the story that Kubrick used to talk about that all the time. Kubrick only adapted because he wanted to already have somebody who broke the story. But I feel like Alexander Payne and Link later, they're not the greatest formal filmmakers. I think you have to give that to like Paul Thomas Anderson. And they're not the most commercial. Commercial is the wrong word. Like they don't have this preternatural talent for pop culture and making wildly entertaining stuff and stuff that's really entertaining like Tarantino. And I think each of those filmmakers has their talent. But I always felt that Linklater movies were about something. Um, And that's what I liked. And I know he's not for everybody, but Boyhood really, like I'm from a divorced family. And so when I saw Boyhood, it was very unsettling to me, like the dad and the weekend dad and what he had gone through and religion and the relationship between the divorced parents, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. And and I think Linklater's always experimenting too. There's always these out of left field Linklater movies, even like Fast Food Nation, which is not a great movie, but you're like, oh, that was a, you know, or Bernie. <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, that was an interesting movie, Bernie. And then it turns out Bernie's living in his back house or whatever. So I felt like Linklater really is engaged with the world around him. And I think Alexander Payne, specifically in Election, but I am an About Schmidt fan. I like Sideways. 
I think Sideways is a dynamite picture. If anyone's not seen Sideways, we're actually going to do it here this year probably. But I would say Alexander Payne's two best movies are Election and Sideways. And Sideways are about these two middle-aged guys that go for a bachelor party. And it's great, like Solvang in Santa Barbara. They don't even go to Napa Valley. They just drive up to Santa Barbara. And they're both, they're not really getting much done with their lives. But Paul Giamatti really isn't. He's just dealing with a divorce. And then Thomas Hayden Church is marrying this woman, but he's just catting around in Santa Barbara and Paul Giamatti feels really, but there's scenes where like Paul Giamatti gets drunk and calls his ex-girlfriend and you're like, no, or his ex-wife. And you're like, don't do it, dude. And it's just like stuff that's from life. There's this great beat Connor. You'll appreciate it as a writer where in the first act, he talks about how he's like a wine connoisseur and he's got the most expensive bottle and he's just waiting for the right moment to open it up. And when that moment happens in the third act, you just almost cry. Because you're like, the way that that plant payoff happens is devastating. Those are the 90s new wave cats. Although I'd love to have their storytelling ability mixed with like the pop culture finesse of a Tarantino with the visual classic talent of a PTA with the formal experimentation of a Soderbergh. I'd like to Frankenstein it. Whenever I first really got into film as like an art in like high school, and like thinking about it that way, the 90s and these guys were really important to me. And I'll bring up the guy who's the most important in a second. I think as I've gone on, I've appreciated that. I do think that like there is a weird thing where, where I think sometimes the things that I appreciate about them are the same things I appreciate about Sam Raimi. But what I love about Sam Raimi and a lot of those era filmmakers is there isn't quite as much of a cult of like they did it. There is this thing with like the 90s era where I think there's like such an like an importance put on the way independent cinema worked then, which was very viable for a lot of people. But I think it's always kind of been there in different ways. And I wish we could focus on that more. And so I, I get not frustrated, but I, I definitely as someone who's like gravitated more and more towards genre stuff, as I've sort of found my voice, the 90s wave stuff also tends to be a little genre shy in certain ways, even though they're also very experimental, which I appreciate. Um, the guy who influenced me the most who's a filmmaker who I don't really love as much anymore is Kevin Smith. I was, it was in my head. I was like, we got to talk about Clerks and Kevin Smith. I still really like those early movies from my memory. I haven't visited them in a while. Clerks and Chasing Amy especially, but Clerks is just, it is a very inspirational film. It is one of those films that's when you watch it as a kid and it's a very, I think, entertaining, fun, energetic film and it's so simple and it definitely is again one of those things where you can see the influence of kind of indie cinema in earlier decades from earlier countries influencing that era of film but totally shaping it towards the modern sort of American culture at the moment. I do think Kevin Smith definitely uh, predicted in a lot of ways the way that the generation he belongs to another, and I'm not necessarily complaining, again, look around my room, but like the way pop culture would become so enveloping 
on conversation and life, which I don't really have a criticism or approval of either way. It's interesting to note. I guess it's better than what people used to be obsessed with sports. This is just not something that anybody, whatever generation you come up with, has any control over. The 90s were a period of relative peace. And what's interesting is I think when you see filmmakers that come out of a period of relative turmoil or tumult or war, you're going to see a certain kind of reflection of that in their cinema. And when you see filmmakers that come out of a time or artists who come out of a time of relative peace, sometimes the focus then becomes more on pop culture or on the art that you loved because you have the freedom to just sort of sit there and consider it. And I think that the thing with the 90s filmmakers that maybe the next generation can learn from, and we're already in the next, I mean, the next generation's already happened in the generation after that, but I do think that there was a real heavy 70s thing put on the 90s filmmakers. Like, everyone was saying, Paul Thomas Anderson is Bob Altman. Quentin Tarantino is... Every single filmmaker? Yeah, he's De Palma and Scorsese and Linklater's Hal Ashby. I'm not saying this is what they said, but there was there was kind of a to to a certain extent the 90s was in love with the 70s which is which is a very typical thing you know the 70s was in love with the 50s which is why when you watch Phantom of the Paradise there's all that doo-wop <laughs> you're like <laughs> David Lynch is somewhat like Billy Wilder in a kind of way but weirder David Lynch is on the record as loving Billy Wilder weirdly David Lynch is sort of straddling the 70s and the 80s cats Sam Raimi is an early 80s cat. And then, of course, we're now in the era of Ari Aster and the Softy Brothers, Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers. These guys are the teens. Well, <laughs> it all started in Amoeba when I discovered the 90s new wave. And that started with Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, and a whole other cats I would not name. The more I got was Quentin Tarantino because all the pop culture stuff really relevates on my life because I would never have known about any other movies that I would know today, especially Andrew Maracone. So that's something I got out of that new wave. For Wes Anderson, I got like 70s punk, you know, 70s rock and roll, Bowie's Rolling Stones. And Rodriguez kind of introduced me to like the Spanish uh, cinema, also horror movies. Like you were saying about how 90s directors reflect on the 70s. 70s PTA is most definitely Robert Altman. He's like the 90s Robert Altman, even though Robert Altman was still around when PTA was still making movies because you can really see in his films. You know, Magnolia is most definitely his Nashville, and it's incredible. I, I, I love both movies, but he's clearly doing Nashville. And but I mean, in PTA's defense, and I, Edwin, I agree, the Altman influence is so, but in his defense, I think PTA probably became aware of that because when you look at like There Will Be Blood and The Master, that's very John Huston to me. And also a, a little bit of Demi because uh, The Master, because there's a shot where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is riding on a motorcycle. That is from Melvin and Howard. That is a direct reference to that movie. You know, it's weird that how these directors take phases. Tarantino takes on uh, like every single genre he could think of and put it into every one of his movies like each year, which is insane to me. I would put his first three movies in a phase, Reservoir, Pulp, and Jackie. I think Kill Bill is sui generis unto itself. It's like his pop culture Bible movie. And then he goes to his weird genre as social criticism, Inglorious Django. Then Hateful Eight is kind of his straight ahead genre movie in a way. And then Once Upon a Time now, he's moving into, I mean, who knows what is supposedly he's only going to make 10 and the next one's the last one, but... I don't believe that. Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't know what Quentin Tarantino's talking about. He was like, how could he give up directing? Like, I'd never want to give this up. But, you know, Tarantino, whether you love him or you hate him, 
he's really stuck by his guns in terms of what he said he's going to do, what he wants to do and how he does it. He really has thought all this stuff out. He often will write criticism and reverse engineer the movie from that. So the way that he writes his scripts is he'll actually write criticism about the kind of movie he wants to make. And then he'll go, okay, I need to avoid that mine and that mine and that mine. And he'll reverse engineer his movie. And I think that he doesn't want to make a bunch of movies that aren't as good as his best movies. You know, he waited to have kids until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood until after that. And he may have been like, I don't want to be a deadbeat dad because he never had a dad. He may have been like, I've made my movies. I want to be a father. I'll make one more now knowing what it's like to be a father. And I'm fine. I mean, he may stick to that. I don't know. I think about Tarantino, I think he's too horny for movies to give it up. Yeah, and no, almost definitely. Even Victor at Los Feliz and also Vista said he, he's going to make more because he loves movies so damn much. Why give it up? You were talking about how so much of your own artistic journey and discovery of pop culture came from Tarantino. What a testament to Tarantino. And I mean, Tarantino's pop culture influence to this day, 30 years after Reservoir Dogs. I mean, now he owns the Vista. The new Bev is like a beacon of rep theater in L.A. When Tarantino revives a career or plays a track, does a needle drop or references a movie. I mean, I certainly got into Jack Hill because of Tarantino. Switchblade Sisters, Rolling Thunder. I have to thank Tarantino, you know, Quentin Tarantino for introducing me to appreciating 70s exploitation. And for me, for Spaghetti Western, because if I never have watched Glorious Bastards, I would never have been introduced to Andy Maracone. So he's also been a film teacher as well. Especially in Los Angeles, I think him putting his money where his mouth is with these things that he loves that so many people talk about, but he is financially showing that that is true for him. To my understanding, the new Bev Runs is basically, it's not a nonprofit, but it is themed around being accessible and not a moneymaker. And buying the Vista, which is sort of this beacon of cinema in Los Angeles, getting that power, I think it was sold knowing that he would keep that up. So him putting money where this where all these things he preaches is i feel like is telling of character i think this generation in general their influence on like mid to younger millennial filmmakers and below is like cannot be overstated i made all these short movies in my senior year of high school i it was kind of awesome i created my own class and I got the theater teacher to be my mentor. I just got independent study credit for writing scripts and making shorts. And my first movie was a total David Lynch ripoff that was like totally about my obsession with Twin Peaks. I even used a Twin Peaks cue with Carla Anderson, who is a junior in a 50s getup dancing with a gun under the moonlight. I remember that to an Angelo Battle of Many track. And the movie was called Sleeping on the Job about a detective who falls asleep and misses some like key information about who the real bad guy was. I made a movie called Things Happen about a guy who has to go to the grocery store at midnight because his mom forgot some stuff. And like he's broken up with his girlfriend and yada yada. And the girl he loves is there who's like the bad girl. It was totally influenced by Clerks. It has like all these long monologues. And I think there's a clerk's poster because I shot in my bedroom. I do have to give it up. Kevin Smith, like, and then I made a movie that was not so great called Arnie's Dream Date, I think, that was maybe like influenced by Spielberg and Scorsese a little bit, where I was trying to do dolly tracking shots in a restaurant. If you're an artist, you get down on yourself for like the stuff you were, but it, it sort of built like you learning that was teaching you like the fundamentals that let you find your voice. There's like this weird idea that you'll eventually have a thing and you'll be like, this is completely in my voice. But I think everything that you take in and in, in art especially builds that and so I love looking back and being like wow I was really into this at that time and now I see how I pull from that I think that in terms of like self-assessing 
I feel like people are often very hard on themselves. It's like, well, I was just trying to make this. And I was like, but the things you learn from failing at that or maybe succeeding let you make your next thing that much better because you have an understanding of what it is you're trying to do that you couldn't put a finger on before. And I, I think that's very cool. I mean, even just talking about these guys, we talk about like PTAs, early films being so Altman influenced. You know, I think everybody in terms of finding their voice, it's not a single thing. It's a brick wall that you build with all these pieces from all these other places. It's important to know that you're going to have to work through your influences before you you land on your independent thing. Some people are lucky and they're just because of their temperament and their personality. They can't do it any other way but their way. But a lot of us are so taken by the things that made us want to get into movie making that I think it's important to have permission that, hey, work through that. You know, that's fine. Like make the stuff where you, you show your Raimi love or your Spielberg love or your Lynch love or your Tarantino love. God willing, you get to a point where you start doing things that no one else is doing, but you do have to move through that and that's fine. Even like older film, even like Spielberg was kind of like with the new West Side, his newest movie, this elder filmmaker was sort of like, I just needed to, he's kind of like, I needed to do a musical. And John Ford, I'm wearing my John Ford shirt because John Ford's our director of the year. Uh, many people hold Ford as the quintessential American director. But even Ford, he'd never liked to really talk about it, but he saw F.W. Murnau's Sunrise in 1927 and a number of his movies, which we don't watch as much anymore in the late 20s and early 30s, was his love of German expressionism until he figured out a way to give it an American flavor. And then he figured that out and then he became John Ford. But it's important to remember that even Ford, you know, was like, I love FW for now. <laughs> All right, guys, pop culture and final thoughts. I recently saw a great uh, midnight movie at the Beverly. She mates and she terminates. And that's Lady Terminator. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest Terminator ripoffs of all time. It's probably better than Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, man. Wow. There's something brave. Never been shown beyond human eyes. This motion picture is insane. It's got everything it's got violence, it's got sex. That quote was insane. It's been shown beyond human eyes. What does that mean? Just go just rock with it. Listen, you don't understand, Craig. Is it it's, is it a Hong Kong category three? Is there some hardcore sex? Uh, no, it's, Indon- it's an Indonesian production. Keeping with today's theme, I watched uh, Richard Linklater's new movie, which has gotten like zero coverage. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's called Apollo Ten and a Half: A Space Age Childhood. It has the same sort of animation style as um, Scanner Darkly. It's Jack Black narrating a, I would guess, semi-autobiographical look at Linklater's 10-year-old life, perhaps. I haven't looked into the details, but it feels very much like a someone recounting their childhood around the Apollo 11 launch and just sort of living in Texas during the space age boom and all of this obsession. And it's very much like that slice of life storytelling. I was interested to see if it would be just sort of kind of nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, but I think the way he looks through nostalgia and what I assume are some of his memories through this very odd animation lens to give it a kind of fantastical feel is really interesting. And it kind of plays with the childhood whimsy of like how we look back at things, how they were versus how we remember them. In the film, there's essentially what's happening in real life with how the push for space is happening and the relationship with family and friends in that time, but also these daydreams of this kid who believes that he's been tasked to go to space on Apollo 10 and a half 
being that NASA built the lunar module too small and they can't rebuild it. So they have to send a kid and <laughs> he's so good at kickball that he makes sense to go. And so it's like this really charming look at how like as a 10 year old, you do think that way of how would I put myself in this, but also looking at it as an adult. I think it's really beautiful. And it's like a little over an hour and a half and on Netflix and absolutely worth your time. I think it's very good link later. Speaking of good movies, I watched uh, Torque, which is... That motorcycle movie? A Joseph Kahn movie. He called it a piss-take version of Fast and the Furious. It is incredible schlock, especially the last couple of scenes and the last scene especially are like transcendent, where you're just watching it like... Like, I can't believe they're doing this. It's pretty great. That's one of those DVD covers that is burned into my brain. Isn't it like shot from below looking up and there's like some very poorly constructed motorcycles below it? I think so. It is a period piece now with all the music cues and stuff. But it's definitely uh, worth checking out if you want to watch a really wild movie about motorcycles. That does some pretty, like, almost, like, Speed Racer, Scott Pilgrim-esque stuff with its style. It's like, 100-foot jumps and stuff? Yeah, though, the last <laughs> scene, there's, like, a motorcycle they get that can go to, like, 0 to 200, how fast it can go. And the last scene, it's like they're breaking the speed of sound and having a fight on these motorcycles. Also, I remembered this will be coming out on my birthday. Hey! Come see Connor's birthday movie, Ryan's Babe. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It is one of the most baffling things you will ever see. I can't wait. May 26th. I want to sit near you, Craig, because I want to hear your audible, like, incredulous (laughs) gasps of disbelief. And uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Watch me play D&D Tuesdays at twitch.tv slash NerdHollow. I saw Benedetta, Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. Of course you did. And it did not disappoint. It rules. I was going to say, like, I'm not the hugest fan of what somebody called, I can't remember who called it, but like the art house Fast and Furious are these lesbian dramas where they get two straight actors who are gorgeous women to be lesbians and they say that it's an LGBTQ movie, but it's a male director. Obviously, Portrait of a Woman on Fire by Celine Sciamma, who is LGBTQ, would be a, a huge exception to that. But there are a lot of the, where people are like, I'm making an enlightened lesbian love story. And then it's like really hot, young. And so I was worried that Paul Verhoeven being in his 80s, that this is what this was going to be. It turned out Verhoeven brings the heat. He's still got the, like. Still got it. Oh, dude. It's so it's, I guess, partially based on a true story, but basically Benedetta has been in a convent since her youth. She seems to be devout, but there are intimations to the end of the film that she may be a little more intelligent in how she's doing that. While she's there, she butts heads with the mother superior. And then a woman comes in off the street because she's been abused by her dad and her brothers. I think her name's Justina, but I may be wrong on that. Justina and Benedetta are very erotically attracted to each other. There is some hot sex scenes for sure. They are good looking French women. There's no getting around that. The sex scenes are very Paul Verhoeven, but it then becomes about the hypocrisy of the church and how the men in the church are totally enjoying sexual relationships, but they're not going to let the women enjoy sexual relationships. Then you discover that the mother superior has a daughter. That was a great reveal. I was like, why are they so close? And then the plague is about, they want to get rid of Benedetta. So this movie becomes about politics and the hypocrisy of the church, the hypocrisy of sexual politics in the church. Who gets hot Jesus, hot Jesus. Who's like action movie star Jesus. And what's so great 
great about it. What I loved is that Verhoeven, whatever he may say in public, the movie never resolves anything in terms of what really was happening. Because the end of the film is a mind blower too, where she goes back to the convent and it says the plague never came to her town. She was never martyred. And you're like, well, wait, the plague was in the town. She promised as long as she was kept alive, it wouldn't come to the town. So what is Verhoeven like? Was there divine intervention? Was there not divine intervention? So Verhoeven makes comments on everything. And I was like, mother bleeper, I want to be 83 years old and make a movie as wild as Benedetta. Benedetta, one of the great movies of 2021. Agreed. I, I will agree, even though I've never seen it, but I, 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 know, I, already, know, I already know. Edwin's renting it right now. Paul Verhoeven <laughs> still got it. He's a master. Based on Benedetta and L and Black Book, he's back in America, yo, making his first English language film since, I guess, uh, Hollow Man. But it's called Young Sinner. Wow. And he's been in interviews. Oh, dude, he's been in interviews. He's bringing sax back to America. It's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. <laughs> All right. So there you go. Secret Movie Club Podcast 105 is going to actually be about our Palm Springs experience. So let's knock wood and be humble about it because as we tape this, we don't know what that experience will be. We are showing 70 millimeter movies on 70 millimeter equipment. So, you know, no one's making 70 millimeter equipment anymore. We just had a tech go out to Palm Springs to get everything ready. Ed Herrera, documentary filmmaker, cinematographer who has been shooting stuff about Secret Movie Club and doing his own projects and shooting his own features along with Maya. Maya and Ed are making a doc right now, so I want to thank Maya and Ed. They recommended Taylor, who is running uh, and basically worked to build the Hollywood Legion to what it is today. Taylor worked with Roger Adams, who at this recording is in my theater, (laughs) actually servicing our booth. Roger Adams went out to Palm Springs and made sure that everything was in tip-top shape, and now he's working on our booth. So thank you, Ed and Maya, for recommending Taylor. Thank you, Taylor, for recommending Roger. Roger, thank you for even... Roger's going to be with us just to make sure that it all goes smoothly. So thank you to everybody who makes something happen. It's a team sport. As James L. Brooks said, I was doing research for our James L. Brooks double, and he said it's a team sport, and he's absolutely right. So thank you, everybody, and let's just hope it all comes off well, and the part we're responsible for, I hope that comes off. So we are going to talk about what the the weekend was like, what it was like watching the movies on 70, and we're going to talk about film formats, uh, 16, Super 8, 35, uh, 70, and now... You know, there's not only digital, but there is 65 or IMAX digital. The Revenant famously was shot on what would be the equivalent of digital 70 millimeter. I believe team members Alex and Josh are going to be on that one. As always, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. All right, guys, have a great week. And thank you, you guys, for being Secret Movie Club team and bringing your voices and making sure that Secret Movie Club is all that it can be. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Love you, family. Bye, guys.